Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today, I'd like to thank Samuel H., Val S., David M., and Lee M., all of whom uh, sent in very generous donations to help uh, pay some of the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. And I really can't thank uh, you and all of our previous donors enough for uh, keeping these podcasts going. So, Samuel, Val, David, and Lee, uh, hey, thanks a million, you guys. Uh, I really appreciate your support. So, like uh, many people in the world, I watched Barack Obama take over as uh, president earlier this week. Having uh, lived through the days of the civil rights movement in the uh, 1950s and 60s, the event uh, took on an added joyous dimension for me, uh, over and above the fact that uh, eight years of the Bush crime family running things is uh, at long last over. But there were some things about the scale of the event and some of the themes that bothered me. One in particular was the call for hope and faith. Hope and faith in the system, or what has become known as the American way of life. In a word, consumerism. And that brought to mind uh, some things I once heard a seer named Krishnamurti say. And uh, so I began to search for the talk that I'd heard it in. I couldn't find the tape I was looking for, uh, but instead I, I came across a whole bunch of short YouTube videos of his talks. So I decided to string together a few of my favorites in an attempt to uh, give us all something to think about as we look ahead to whatever it is that's coming our way. Now, without the video to set the scene, you'll have to make a few quick jumps uh, as you listen to him speak uh, first in a lecture hall and then to an outdoor setting where he is uh, answering written questions from a crowd and on to other kinds of uh, interactive sessions as well. In the program notes, I'll provide links to the full YouTube videos that these came from, but what I discovered by stripping out the sound is that I was better able to focus on his thoughts when uh, I listened rather than uh, when I listened and watched the videos and sometimes got distracted by uh, scans of the crowd and other scenes. Now uh, you can listen to a few of his words of wisdom uh, without those distractions and then take a look at the video format later if you want. And by the way, uh, this is only a very tiny smattering of all the hours of Krishnamurti videos that uh, you can find online. So let's begin now with an introduction of Krishnamurti from a video titled, You Are the World. I, I believe this was actually done by the Krishnamurti Foundation of America in uh, 2002. But <laughs> to be honest, uh, the announcer you're about to hear is so dramatic that uh, I think he sounds more like something from a 1940s theater newsreel or something. Uh, of course, uh, I also think that adds a, a lot of charm to the introduction. And so I thought it would be more fun just to uh, hear these facts from someone other than me. So now let's uh, begin our little odyssey through the mind of Krishnamurti. Throughout history, rare individuals have broken with tradition. Socrates, Einstein, Martin Luther, the great revolutionary Jesus Christ, Freud, the Buddha. They had the courage and insight to see themselves and the world around them 
in a completely new way. And what they saw changed the world forever. As Einstein was to Newton, so he was to spirituality. For most of the 20th century, millions of people from all over the world were drawn to his vision. The Dalai Lama, Aldous Huxley, Eric Clapton, Cahil Gibran, Hurricane Carter, Greta Garbo, Deepak Chopra, Van Morrison, Helen Keller, Charlie Chaplin, Jonas Salk, George Bernard Shaw, mothers, students, farm workers, poets, scientists, and heads of state. He spoke to each of them directly of the most fundamental issues facing humanity. What we are trying, you know, in these discussions and talks here, is to see if we cannot radically bring about a transformation of the mind. Not accept things as they are. Nor revolt against it. Revolt doesn't answer everything. But to understand it, to go into it, to examine it, give your heart and your mind with everything that you have to find out, a way of living differently. The speaker is Krishnamurti. That noise of a motor. He is a man who cannot be placed in a simple category like philosopher or religious leader. He is, however, one of the more challenging and creative men of our time. Born in South India and educated in England, he has followed a singular and original path of thought free of factionalism and dogma. We've got the capacity, the energy, the sufficient intelligence to go into ourselves, look at ourselves, face ourselves, never escaping from us. We've got all the energy to do that. Think what, ne what energy is needed to go to the moon. You understand, sir? Enormous cooperative energy, drive. But apparently, when it comes to us, we kind of become slack. Nobody's going to give it to you. That's one absolute fact, irrefutable fact, because we have had leaders, we have had teachers, we have had saviors, we have had every kind of outside agency. And the misfortune is, we are, because we don't know ourselves, we're destroying, our, destroying other human beings. We're destroying this marvelous earth. He traveled the globe and spoke of living without conflict, of freedom, compassion, education, violence, meditation, fear, love and loneliness on relationship, living and dying. Translated in 33 languages, his 75 books challenge humanity to discover a new way of living. Where there is love, do what you will, it will be right action. It will never bring conflict to one's life. So it's important to see that 
jealousy, antagonism, conflict and all the pain of relationship has no place in love. Where there is love? And can one be free of all that? Not tomorrow, now. Number five question is, who are you? Is that an important question? Or would you say, who am I? Not who you are, who am I? And if I tell you who am I, who I am, what does it matter? It will be out of curiosity, won't it? It's like reading a menu at the, win- at the window. You have to go into the restaurant and eat food. But merely standing outside and reading the menu won't satisfy your hunger. So, to tell you who I am, who I am is really quite meaningless. First of all, I'm nobody. Right? That's all. It's very simple as that. I'm nobody. But what is important is who you are. What am I? What are you? When they ask who you are, they are, in that question is implied, you are somebody very great, therefore I'm going to imitate you. The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you brush your teeth or whatever it is. I'm going to imitate you. Which is part of our pattern, you understand? There is the hero, or the man who is enlightened, or the guru, say, I'm going to copy everything you do. Which becomes so absurdly silly, you understand? Childish, to imitate somebody. And are we not the result of a lot of imitations? The religions have said, they don't use the word imitate, but give yourself over, surrender yourself, follow me, I am this, I am that, worship, right? All this is what you are. In school you imitate. Please. Acquiring knowledge is a form of imitation. And, of course, there is the fashion, short dress, long dress, long hair, short hair, beard, no Imitate, imitate, imitate. And also we imitate inwardly. So we all know that. But to find out who you are, who you are, not who the speaker is, is far more important. And to find out who you are, you have to inquire. You are the story of mankind. 
Mr. Really, a very, if you really see that, it gives you tremendous vitality, energy, beauty, love. Because it is no longer a small entity struggling in the corner of the earth. You're part of this whole humanity. It has a tremendous responsibility, vitality, beauty, love. But most of us won't see this, but whereas we are most of us concerned with ourselves, with our particular little problem, particular little sorrow and so on. And to step out of that narrow circle seems almost impossible. Because we are so conditioned, so programmed like the computers, that we cannot learn something new. The computer can, but we can't. See the tragedy of it. The machine that we have created, the computer, can learn much faster, much infinitely more than I can, than the brain can. And the brain which has invented that, that has become ultra-intelligent machine. Whereas ice, the, uh, the, our brain is sluggish, slow, dull, because we have conformed, we have obeyed, we have followed, there is the guru, there is the priest, there is the rich, you follow? And when you do revolt, as the revolutionaries and the terrorists do, it is still very superficial, changing the pattern of politics, of so-called society. Society is merely the relationship between people. And we are talking of a revolution, not physical, but the psychological revolution in which there is no, at the depth, conformity. We put on trousers, because in this country, and we put on in India's different clothes. That's not conformity. That's, that's nothing childish. But inwardly, not a feeling of conformity. Conformity exists when there is comparison. For a mind to be totally free from comparison. That is, to learn, to observe the whole history which is embedded in you. You've heard all this, you as a human being. Why don't you change? What prevents you? If each one of us asks that question, not verbally, or merely intellectually, as an entertainment, but ask that question most seriously and deeply, what's your answer? 
What's your answer to this problem that human beings have lived this way for millennia upon millennia? Why haven't they changed? Why haven't you, who are, the, who are listening now, why haven't you changed? You know, if you don't change, what the consequences are, you'll be national, nationalistic, you'll be tribal, insular, isolated, and therefore having no relationship globally, fighting, 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 building up more and more armaments, destroy each other. Now, why don't you, if you are at all serious in this matter, why don't you ask yourself that question? Why am I, a human being, who have been through all this, why haven't I changed? What would be your answer? Either you are not serious, you want to live a very, very superficial life, and that superficiality temporarily satisfies you, or you really don't care, as long as you have immediate pleasures, immediate satisfactions, you really don't care. You don't care for your children if they, if they are murdered, if you really have no deep uh, love, affection for them. If you had, you would prevent all wars. So, apparently, none of these things mean anything to you. All probably, you are so deeply conditioned psychologically, of course we are biologically conditioned, that's a different matter altogether, but psychologically conditioned, and one is not aware of it. And you can, unless that, in that there is a freedom from that conditioning, you will go on this way. After all, life is one. One global unitary movement. So, in the same way, our consciousness is common to all mankind. Now, if I radically change, surely it affects the rest of the consciousness of man. Now, why don't you change? Is it possible to totally bring about a mutation in what is? And to bring, to go into that, to go into this question of bringing about a total revolution in what is, one must have an extraordinary sense of awareness. You know, to be aware what it means. <coughs> to be aware of the trees, of the blue sky through the trees. We were saying how very important it is to bring about 
in the human mind a radical revolution. The crisis, and there are always crises in the world, especially now, it seems to me, is a crisis in consciousness, a crisis that cannot anymore accept the old norms, the old patterns, the ancient traditions, a particular way of life, whether it is the American way or the European way or the Asiatic way. And considering what the world is now, with all the misery, conflict, destructive brutality, aggression, tremendous advancement in technology, and so on. It seems to me, though man has cultivated the external world and has more or less mastered it, inwardly he is still as he was. A great deal of animal in him is still brutal, violent, aggressive, acquisitive, competitive, and he has built a society along these lines. What do you think is happening to the whole American people as a whole? With the automation, with electronic brains, with, you know what I mean, the whole setup. What is happening and where are they going? You understand? I think an increasing number of them are beginning to ask themselves the question uh, to whether or not there may be alternative forms of human behavior. Because they have... And what do they do? Because by then, after asking questions and all the rest of it, they're almost finished. They're ready for the grave. And in Europe, the phenomena there is the same as here, more or less. The production is more, perhaps, than in America even. In Germany, what's In Germany, of course. And Russia is now doing the same. Hmm? So, take all these parts, hmm? put them together, China, Japan, whole of Asia, India included, and then Europe, America, China. Where is it all moving? What we are concerned with is the understanding of the whole process of life with all its complexity, with its aggressions and miseries, with its sorrows and confusions and agonies. And to understand this vast field of life which is a constant movement, one must not only hear the words, but also go beyond the words. Because the words, the explanations are not the facts. But most of us are caught in words. And one must be free of the word, the symbol, 
the idea, the conclusion. Then one can look, then one can listen. And that act of listening is a really a miracle. Perhaps it's the greatest miracle. When one can listen totally, without any defence, without any barrier, neither agreeing nor disagreeing, which doesn't mean the mind is open. On the contrary, the mind is extraordinarily alert there. I hope when one is listening to this talk or to the various other talks that are coming, One hears a lot of words and hearing many words is not listening. It's like a noise among the leaves, soon passes away. When we hear, we either accept or reject or we translate what we hear according to our knowledge, our background, or we compare what is being said to what is already known, or we oppose one idea by another. All these characteristics of hearing denies the act of listening. The act of listening is entirely different. When one listens, there is no comparison, there is no acceptance or rejection. The quality of listening is attention. And when you attend totally, with your whole mind, with your heart, with your nerves, with your eyes and ears, completely, in that state of attention, there is the act of listening. And that listening puts away anything that is not true. When you give your whole attention to something, that is when you are completely listening, you listen to the totality of the thing. When you attend, there is no borders of inattention. When you so intensely listen, you are listening to the birds, to the wind, to the breeze among the leaves. You listen to the slightest whisper that's about you. So in the same way, when one listens, that very act of listening 
brings about a total attention in which you see the totality and the whole significance and structure of what is being said. When you say, I can't, you have blocked, you have blocked yourself. But you can understand more and more of it. Not by blocking yourself. Look, sir, if I say there is no God, hmm, I've blocked myself, haven't I? Or if I say there is God, I've blocked myself. But if I say, I really don't know, let's find out. Then I have the energy to go into it. Right? Now, so don't let us say yes or no. Don't let us take sides about it. <laughs> now, how would you see the totality of something, of life? You know, get a grasp of feeling of it, a touch of it, a smell of it. Well, as I said, by trying to take more and more of it and understand more and more of it. Ah, you have no time. I know, that's the problem. Oh. That's the problem, of course. You're saying that's that what you I said. That way. That's what I said at the beginning. Yes, I, I mean, if I take time, time, you know, I, it'd be impossible. Follow it up, follow it up step by step. You have approached this problem with the habitual tools, hmm? and you have eliminated those tools. Not because you are, you are prejudiced against them, hmm? but you see that they won't answer. Now, when you have eliminated them because they do not answer, your mind is sharper, isn't it? If you're on the right track. Of course, you have eliminated them. <laughs> right? right. No. Of what significance is hope and faith to living? What significance is hope and faith to living? I hope you won't think me harsh if I say there is no significance at all. We've had hope, we've had faith, faith in church, faith in politics, faith in leaders, faith in gurus, because we've wanted to achieve a state of bliss, of happiness and so on. And hope has nourished this faith. And when one observes through history, through our life, all that hope and faith have no meaning at all, because what is important is what we are, actually what we are, not what we think we are, or what we think we should be, but actually what is. If we know how to look at what is, that, that will bring about a tremendous transformation. We are the product of the society in which we live, the experience, the knowledge and all the rest of it. And there is nothing original. We repeat, repeat, repeat. And to find
find out anything new. It requires tremendous inquiry, meditation. You don't, you don't just get it by just sit at coming to a meeting for an hour and thinking of a meeting. One has to work tremendously hard. You do work very hard to earn a livelihood, to go to the office every day. But this requires much more alertness, much more careful examination. And one is not, one doesn't have the energy, the patience or the interest, because this is non-profitable. <laughs> it doesn't bring you any profit, financial or any other way. Here is the question. I suffer physically, psychologically, and I can do something physically. <coughs> psychologically, I don't know what to do. And not knowing what to do, I escape. Or go to somebody who will tell me what to do. Or I put up with it, getting more and more and more bitter, dull, stupid, uh, full of animosity and all the rest of it. Without doing any of those things, can one look at that thing? Neither enjoying it nor pushing it away. Which means, can I look at it without any demand for a, to overcome it, to justify it, to control it, just to be observe it? How is it possible to do what you say in How is it possible to do what I say for? I said, it would seem that I would have to start by doing it for a few seconds. Do it! Do it! Do it! For a second, do it! Ow! <laughs> <laughs> you know, as I said the other day, the word how is the most mischievous word, because Somebody, you want somebody else to tell you how to do it. So you, we suffer, not willing to suffer, there is suffering. And we are asking, can you look at it and remain with it, be quiet with it? neither accepting nor rejecting, just be quiet with it. Huh? Please, doesn't this require great meditation? No, please, do it. <laughs> if one does it, 
you will find that you derive from that very observation a great energy, don't you? You are not dissipating any energy. It is there. When, when, when the question such as what am I to do with myself, or however the question may be framed, uh, there is always someone there, whether it's the advertising man on television uh, or, or the, the, the Zen yes, uh, yes, master sir, yes, sir. to uh, Tell give him uh, you know, a set yes, of answers yes. and somebody follows him and nothing will happen. Because there is nothing in this culture that we're talking about that, that, that would prompts people uh, to listen, uh, really to come into relation to themselves in a tough-minded way. This is young nation, you follow what I mean? It's a young nation. A mixture of extraordinary, you know, thoughts, feelings, and cultures. I should have thought they would produce something extra, you know? Well, we don't know quite what will happen when this nation faces up to the external crisis. They never have. Mm-hmm. Would you say she has reached immaturely, forced by circumstances, a pinnacle? of maturity and now declining. This I would say. Yes. You would say that. When you have really faced with a problem of war, of famine, of death, of poverty and so on, you can't argumentatively discuss about them. One has to deal with them. One has to put one's teeth into them. And you cannot artificially, intellectually have teeth to put into problems that are vital. So I hope when we ask questions and go, go into those questions, I hope they will not be merely intellectual or curious, but serious enough to, to investigate for ourselves what lies behind these questions and their import. What is the problem? Hunger. Hmm? Hunger, uh, lack of clothes, hmm? shelter, all that. Now, how is it going to be solved? Not by a particular nation. Hmm? as you and I can't solve the... if we went in India we couldn't solve it. No, sovereign government is going to solve this. No Indian government is going to solve it. They can pretend, and they do. Hmm? So, what is preventing the solution of this problem is nationalism. Hmm? My flag, your flag, my country, your country, Hmm? and the division that takes place geographically, which is exploited by the politician. Hmm? That is the factor, one of the major factors of preventing the solution of starvation, of feeding the people. Now, science has means of giving food, clothes and shelter practically to everybody. It's not being done because of you are a British, I'm an Indian or Russian. So it's a world problem, not individual or nationalistic problem. Right. Well, how do you... Uh... 
How do you suppose that uh, we'll be able to overcome these nationalistic barriers? First, one has to be free of it oneself. One has to be free of it oneself. Hmm? Neither American nor Indian nor... Uh, right. Then, get up and talk, shout, do anything. For the, for the, not for the little things, but for the major issues. Then perhaps you will have, you will sow some seed that will take root. Hmm? Now, if every human being, educated, cultured, um, who is really serious, wants to solve this problem, he will do something. Like war. We have accepted war as the way of life. All man has, throughout centuries. And to stop war, difference is concerned with the whole process of living as a human being. Then perhaps we'll be able to solve this question of war. Potentially, Potentially society quite, quite. has solved the problem of food, clothing, and shelter. Oh, once you've solved those problems, what do you have to look... what else? I don't quite understand what else. You mean, what is beyond these three? Yes. So, what is man seeking, basically? He basically is seeking these three. Because these are absolute necessities, whether California, or India, or Russia, anywhere. So beyond that, he says, after satisfying that, let's seek something else. Let's go after something else. Hmm? Is that the way to begin? Is, is it bread first and then the other, or the other first and bread afterwards? I don't know if you... I follow you, I believe. Yes. So, in getting bread, we get lost. We get superficial, we get um, caught in, in the trap of amusement and religiosity, you know, all that. But if we were seeking, not seeking so much, if we were after something more than bread and butter, in the more included the bread and butter, then I think would, this problem would never arise. What we are trying during all these discussions and talks here is to see if we cannot radically bring about a transformation of the mind. Not accept things as they are. Nor revolt against it. Revolt doesn't answer a thing. But to understand it, to go into it, to examine it, give your heart and your mind with everything that you have to find out, a way of living differently. But that depends on you and not somebody else. Because in this there is no teacher, no pupil. There is no leader. There is no guru. There's no master, no savior. You have to... You yourself are the teacher and the pupil. You are the master, you are the guru, you are the leader. You are everything.
man. To understand is to transform what is. Please explain what you mean by saying that if one perceives truth and does not act, it acts as poison. Do you need explanation for that? All right. I have heard the truth that thought is limited. That's the truth. That's not an invention. That's not an exotic idea, something conceived by some idiot or other. It is a fact. And I listen to the fact, the truth of it. And I carry on my daily life. What takes place? I've realized something to be true and I'm acting quite the opposite to that. What happens? Conflict increases more and more and more. It's much better not to hear the truth. Then you can carry on in your old way. But moment you hear something to be extraordinarily beautiful, and you don't, and that beauty just a mere description of, but the actuality of that beauty, then you do something ugly and keep on repeating doing the thing ugly, it's obviously a poison. It not only affects you physically, inwardly, but also it affects a great deal the brain that has heard something to be true and does the contrary. Therefore it's much better not to hear if you want to carry on your old way. There's a very good story of four robbers, no, two robbers as many, and they've been robbing and their father has been praising God for their, for his kindness, for their benefit. Thieves have also gods, not the only rich people. So one day they have been robbing somebody or other and are coming back. In the patio, in the square, palazzo, piazza, there, there is a man saying, giving a sermon, and he's saying, you must never steal. You must never hurt another. Be kind. The other brother closes his eyes, ears, doesn't want to hear. And the other brother hears it. And for the rest of his life, he's in pain.
I think this is a fact, really a great fact, but we don't, we don't seem to realize it. That when you see something enormously beautiful, you see, you have, you're sensitive enough to see that beauty, and you do something ugly, it really tortures you. If you are sensitive. And that's why truth is such a dangerous thing. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. About a third of the way into this series of sound bites, uh, he said, we are psychologically conditioned to continue on with the status quo, and one is not aware of it. Unless there is freedom from this conditioning, you'll go on this way. Well, that's precisely why I'm doing these podcasts. While I'm not advocating that anyone do anything that might get them in trouble with the powers that be, nonetheless, I want to make sure that no mistake is made about the fact that by far, the best way to break the bonds of psychological conditioning that our families, our nation, our culture, our friends, and our religions have forged on our minds is to first learn how to use our sacred medicines in a positive and respectful manner. And one of the ways in which uh, they can be used as a way to help focus your mind on larger issues than what normally takes place with the constant chatter we all have going on in our heads most of the time now, uh, only the most dedicated psychonauts uh, do things like this, but one interesting exercise is uh, when you're coming down from a heroic mushroom trip, but not yet all the way back to baseline, try uh, listening to 15 or 20 minutes of Krishnamurti, uh, and then put on some challenging music, like uh, something from Spangle or Infected Mushroom, and see where that leads you. Then repeat the experience, uh, but this time play something more mellow, like uh, Kitaro. I can't guarantee that uh, doing that will put you in the fast lane on the road to awakening, but at the very least, it's going to help you get up on that highway's feeder streets. And speaking of psychedelic fun and games, I recently hooked up with Sats and Nina, who are a young couple from Croatia, and uh, they sent me some links to some of the psychedelic events that are going on in that lovely country, and I was uh, completely blown away. You know, uh, sometimes us California freaks get to thinking that the best scene in the world is out here. But uh, from what I now know about Croatia, I see that uh, (laughs) there really isn't a best place to be right now, uh, physically at least. The best place uh, to be is to be in a good spot in your own head. And uh, the heads in Croatia look to me to uh, be in a very good place indeed. So uh, party on, dudes and dudesses. Another message I received this week came from uh, Jake L., who said, Hey, Lorenzo, I'm a two-year listener and just want to say, first of all, thank you for the salon. But not only that, thank you for your recommendations on other podcasts. I just recently listened to the Black Light in the Attic, and wow, great stuff, really enjoyed it. So thank you again. I was also wondering if you might happen to be a fan of Hunter S. Thompson, and if you knew of any series of recorded lectures, and if you might be interested in podcasting some of Hunter's talks. I have some stuff, and I'll be searching for more. Let me know if you'd like to get a listen or something, and I could send it to you if you'd like. 
Well, Jake, uh, you hit one of my hot buttons because uh, I'm a huge fan of Hunter S. Thompson. Although uh, I must admit that he was uh, one of those people who I like to read but probably wouldn't want to hang around with. Uh, too much alcohol in his diet for my taste. But his writing I, I found superb. And uh, <laughs> if you've never read any of his works, I, uh, I suggest starting with the title story from his uh, collection of short stories, The Great Shark Hunt, Strange Tales from a Strange Time. Uh, and if that one doesn't make you laugh out loud, uh, you might as well move on. So uh, my answer is yes, I'd love to preview some of Dr. Thompson's work, uh, as long as it uh, is either in the public domain or in some kind of a copyright gray area where I can use it. But I've never actually uh, listened to any of his talks, so I I can't say for sure if they'd fit here in the salon, but uh, I'd sure like to hear some Dr. Hunter S. Thompson Jr. for myself, uh, so thanks for thinking of us. And I also want to uh, thank all of our fellow saloners who have linked to our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon website. Whether it's uh, through a direct link or track back, uh, all of those connections help us get a higher Google ranking and as a result, uh, bring more of our fellow psychonauts to the salon. In particular, uh, I see that uh, dailygrail.com and beyondthedial.wordpress.com have linked to the majority of our podcasts. And and so to all of you who are linking to us, uh, whether it's through Facebook or MySpace or your own sites, I want to thank you for your help in getting the word out to the rest of the world that the psychedelic community is alive and well and isn't going to go away anytime soon. Now, in a minute, I'm going to close with a quote that I find to be one of the most psychedelic thoughts I've come across in a long time. But first, I I feel that I would be remiss if I didn't say at least a few more words about the recent change of administration in the U.S., If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you already know that I became disenchanted with young Mr. Obama last July when he turned his back on his early supporters and caved into the intelligence community by supporting more domestic spying under the FISA law. And that was only the first of my big disappointments in him. But hey, uh, that poor guy has the entire world's expectations on his shoulders. You know, there's just simply no way he can uh, live up to our expectations. And so I have to keep in mind the fact that uh, at least the evil Bush crime family is no longer in the White House, although their uh, dirty tentacles are still deep into the fabric of the nation and probably won't be pried loose anytime soon. In a way, uh, the letdown the day after the change of power caused me to uh, feel sort of like a new college grad, you know, uh, standing on the corner the day after graduation and wondering... What next? (laughs) But now I've had a couple of days to think about all that has taken place these past few years and then again in the past few days. I know that uh, as I watched what actually looked more like a a coronation or an installation of a major religious figure than an inauguration of a democratically elected president, uh, but when the million-plus throng of people began chanting the new president's name over and over, First thing I thought about was uh, Terrence McKenna's comment in last week's podcast where he said he always got a little nervous when there were large crowds uh, chanting political slogans. (laughs) But hey, uh, in a sense, the celebration was every bit as much about getting rid of little Georgie boy as it was about Obama. And while the significance of a black man running the nation state shouldn't be underestimated, I think it's uh, equally important to recognize that even if his father had been white, his accomplishment would be staggering. 
So uh, I think we should equally honor the fact that he was raised by, raised largely at least, by uh, a single working mother. Uh, to me, that's uh, also an impressive story. But let's not kid ourselves. Uh, the U.S. is still a very racially divided and prejudiced nation. And so the rise to the top of the political structure by a man of African descent is uh, astounding. While I have many major differences with the new president, they all pale when compared uh, to the positive effect his presidency is going to have on countless, countless people of color around the world. This was brought home to me most effectively yesterday while I was out on my morning walk. As I was heading home, I met a young woman who was pushing a baby stroller. In the stroller was a young girl, probably around five years old. And she was definitely too big for the small vehicle she was being pushed in. And so this little black girl was uh, halfway curled up in a fetal-like position, and she was sucking her thumb. The little girl and I made eye contact, and I have to admit that tears are coming back to my eyes again right now as I, I think of the look she gave me. It was, it was a look of immense sadness and despair, and, and it really tore my heart out. Now, maybe she was just having a bad day. I don't know. What I haven't mentioned is that this little black girl was being pushed by a blonde Caucasian woman who appeared to be in her early 30s and was quite busily talking on the cell phone. Now, I don't know if this was uh, the little girl's mother or caregiver, but in any case, the little girl she was taking for a walk sure looked like she was having a less-than-optimal life, at least at that moment. However, in the same instant that the little girl and I looked into each other's eyes, a picture of the two Obama girls came to me. And in an instant, in a flash, I fully understood the import of what took place in Washington on the 20th of January this year. And I somehow feel that no matter how difficult the struggle that little girl in the stroller will have in this life, at least she's going to be able to see those two little Obama girls, her age and her skin color, living in the White House, being part of the first family of the land. And while that isn't going to solve her problems in life, it most certainly should give her reason to believe that she doesn't need to just hope for things to get better. She can actually cause things to improve for herself. Because now, one of the biggest walls in the world has just come down. And for that alone, I will remain eternally grateful for being alive to witness this particular moment in history. Now let's get to work tearing down the rest of the artificial walls that separate our human family. I'm going to close for now, but before I go, I want to read a quote by the philosopher Alan Watts, who is also an acid head, I might add. And it may not leave much of an impression on some of our fellow saloners, but if you spend a little time thinking about the implications of this one short sentence, you might find it to be the most psychedelic thought you've ever encountered. Here's what he said. I have realized that the past and future are real illusions, that they exist in the present, which is what there is and all there is. And for now... This is Lorenzo signing off from the eternal present of cyberdelic space. Be well, my friends.